Good morning, North Boulevard. Those of you online, good morning. It was awesome, awesome Sunday last week. I don't know if you guys know this, we had 32, more than 3,200 people last week, which is probably the second biggest crowd North Boulevard has ever had in 75 years. And that's 2,200 in person and over 900 online, which is just really awesome. We're just really glad you guys online are joining us. And uh, you should applause or something because God did something cool. Speaking of 75, this is our 75th anniversary as a congregation. Uh, the birthday was June the 15th, but we're doing a celebration, God willing, on September 25. And we've leased the uh, baseball diamond over at MTSU. And uh, those of you online, if you can come to Murfreesboro, come join us. We'll do one big service, all the campuses together, all the services together. And then I think afterwards we have food trucks and inflatables and all. So it'll be kind of just a big celebration. Should be a little bit cooler that time. I want to make sure you know that uh, we'll do that on 25th. And then the next day, Monday night, Neil Anderson will be at North Boulevard live and in person. Uh, Neil Anderson, who's published more than 100 books, by the way, wrote one of the most influential books on spiritual warfare. He published it in the 70s, Bondage Breaker, has sold, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of copies, but it's a real treat to have him come. He'll be speaking in conjunction with a sermon series I want to do um, on angels and demons and all things spiritual coming, God willing, this fall. And one other thing, next Sunday, when you see a university or college student, go up and welcome them and greet them. It should be Student Sunday. MTSU students will be back in place, and we'll have a whole lot of them at this service, second service. So make sure that you let them know that you're glad that they decided to come to North Boulevard. When Job, Job of the Old Testament, wanted to argue that all things that happen are under God's control, he says to do this, ask the animals, he said, and they will teach you that God is in charge of all things. So let's ask an animal. Back about four months or so ago, my daughter and son-in-law got a new puppy. Willow was her name. And unbeknownst to them at the time, Willow came with a six-pack already in place. She was pregnant. And at first we thought to ourselves, oh, with all this going on in our lives, all we need is a bunch of puppies. But turns out that God knew, to, knew what he was doing because all that sweet new life has been the best blessing in the world. And though Willow herself is a puppy, God has already imprinted on her heart a lesson I want you to get today. Watch this. So, first of all, God has taught Willow that she is in charge of the safety of these little puppies. So, as they were wandering around upstairs, Willow decided that she knew where they ought to go and where they shouldn't go. The first day we took the puppies outside, there were six of them, the very first time they went outside. So imagine this, you're a puppy and you live in this swimming pool here, so as to protect the carpet. We took them outside and when we brought them all in, all six of them, they were so traumatized, they just were frozen in place. And they stood there so long that Willow finally got worried about them and started sniffing them to find out, is there something wrong? And the sweetest little thing, all six of them fell asleep and fell down on the ground at exactly the same moment. But mama knew check on those puppies and make sure they're okay. Mama's also very concerned that they not play with any toys that could hurt them. So as this one catches his first roll of paper towels, Willow follows her around to make sure that she's okay. And which mother can't relate to this image here as Willow watches the rowdy kids fight and play with each other and scream out to one another. And then just to make sure that you know, you can never ever go wrong with puppy pictures in a sermon Willow demonstrates what it means to take care of the next generation. Job says, ask the animals and they'll tell you. In Christian theology, it's called natural theology. 
the, the Christian belief that some things are natural. God has revealed some things to us naturally. You don't even need a Bible to understand it. And here's one of them. Naturally, God has revealed to us that we have the responsibility and the privilege of teaching our children the commandments of God. And that's the lesson today. That each of us has both a responsibility, but really think of it as a privilege, the privilege of handing down to the next generation, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, mentors, friends, school teachers, coaches, whoever you are. Each of us as followers of Jesus has the responsibility, but the privilege of making sure these little ones receive the faith, the treasure that was handed on to us. Now it's our turn to hand it on to the next generation. I think you have to be careful not to read a story in the Bible and push it too far. But in this case, Deuteronomy chapter 11 can be pushed pretty far. For it really is a program of how to pass faith from one generation to the next. So turn to Deuteronomy 11. I'm going to read sections of Deuteronomy 11. I see a bunch of you reaching for your Bibles or your phones. Awesome. Glad you're doing it. Because this text really shows us the importance as well as some strategies for how to take the faith that was given to us. And I just want to make sure you get this. Guys, I know you know it. I know you know this. But like, just ponder it for a moment. Let it sink in for a moment. That the great storehouse, the thesaurus of all the beauties and the powers of the Christian faith were given to us by somebody else the previous generation, and now we get to hand it on to the next generation. That's what Deuteronomy 11 is about. Watch the program that Moses lays out in this text. They're getting ready to enter the land of Israel. Moses is giving his final sermon. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses's last sermon before he dies and the children of Israel go across into the land of Israel. And he starts by saying this, we'll start at verse one, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. I'm going to jump down to verses 26 to 28 because I want you to see this is reinforced in our sermon, reinforced in the text, that Moses says, make sure you personally submit to the Lord God. So he says here in verses 26, 7, and 8, see, I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, a curse if you disobey the commands. So I'm going to say this, as a preliminary as a preamble or a precursor of passing the faith on to the next generation, you need to make sure that you yourself have made a commitment to Jesus. You cannot give away that which you do not have. And I want to make sure we understand how we live is far more important than what we say about ourselves. And every generation needs heroes, mentors, role models. Every generation needs to be able to look up and say, they cleared a path for me. And now I get to walk easily in it. It was given to us. 75 years North Boulevard's been here. I don't think it was easy. You know, that generation, they forked out a lot of money. They put an awful lot of time and sweat, and they shed an awful lot of tears to get North Boulevard to where it is today. Don't assume it's always been this way. It hasn't. People worked hard to give us the treasures we have. It seems to me that it's, a, it's a, an era, I don't mean an age group, but it's an era of ingratitude in America. 
America's got plenty of sins, plenty of problems, plenty of things we wish were better. But don't assume that all of this just naturally emerged, that this great nation with all of its freedoms and its prosperity, so great that people by the thousands are trying to get in here, risk anything to get into this nation. It was handed to us as a treasure from the previous generation. At least practice a little gratitude towards it. That people cleared the way for us. Because knowing that the previous generation made sacrifices for me will motivate me to do it for the next generation. I've said this to several people. I don't mean to leave anybody out. But all through the 1990s, almost every day for uh, nine years, Joe Mays and Tom Beatty took me to lunch. Both have gone on to be with the Lord. They both have joined the church victorious. And when I got my diagnosis back in March, Carol, Jenny, I would have given anything to sit down with Joe and Tom. I'd have given anything because I know what Joe would have done. Joe would have reached over to me and he put his hand on my shoulder. And, you know, with one finger, he'd have done this. He'd have scratched my back and he just said, we're going to be with you every step of the way. That's what Joe would have done. Just a few words. And Tom would have reminded me this is part of life. That's what he would have done. He'd have reminded me this is part of life and you'll get through this. I remember Tom, when he was diagnosed with his cancer, the first thing he said to me, I'm not scared at all. I'd just give so much, I'd give a million dollars if I could go out to lunch with him one more time. The power of a mentor, the power of a hero, don't underestimate it, but the reason I grant them hero status in my heart is because they modeled what I want to be. I'm just saying to you, we want to hand on to the next generation faith in Jesus. Well, it starts with you modeling what that looks like. The people will see your behavior long before they hear your words. And they'll put a lot more importance on what you do than on what you say. So we start there, but let's keep reading because verses 2 through 7 describe this thing that we all know intuitively, but I'm not sure that we think of it very much. Let's read it, starting at verse 2. Remember today... Look at our glasses out. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to the whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you. How the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the wilderness until you arrived at this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up in their, their households, their tents, and everything that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw these great things that the Lord has done. What is he saying? He is reminding us that our children do not automatically get faith in Jesus. The Christian faith is never caught. It is always only taught. I've been so blessed and, and so many of my blessings have come through this congregation. We were talking this weekend, Julie and I, our anniversary this weekend. It just feels like North Boulevard was perfect for us and has been. I've seen so many miracles. Even in the last few weeks, I've heard testimonials of what God can do. We have, 
We have a member sitting here right now who died, and I'm glad to say she's back. And has a fantastic story about what God did. I've, I've tasted the goodness of God. I'm not bragging. He's give, it was a gift he gave me. It's not anything I did. But guys, you can't assume that the next generation has had all of that. They only get it if we pass it on to them. It's not in the water. It's not genetic. It has to be taught. We have to lead the next generation to experience the love of God. And the sermon is not really a parenting sermon, which subject mortifies me. Actually, I was so much happier doing sermons on parenting before I became a parent. It was so much easier back then. And I was so sure back then of what needed to be done. This is a sermon about how to give faith to the next generation, even if you're not a parent. This is a sermon for parents, but it's also a sermon that says one of the great ways that the Christian faith has spread historically. I don't know that as many of us think this way today as we used to think as Christians, although we have some bright shining stars here. But one of the great ways we spread was we adopted and we raised people to know Jesus. We, we really ought to put that back on our table, that Christians think about fostering and adoption so not only we can spread the love of God, but so that we can show people who Jesus is. This is for parents. This sermon is for uncles and for aunts. It's for mentors of G for Jesus, people who will train. Um, uh, uh, at first service today was um, Jim and Martha McDermott, were Jim and Martha McDermott. When my son lost his faith in his teen years, which by the way was just a, was nobody's fault. It, it, it was a turmoil inside of him. For a stretch, Jonathan's only connection to North Boulevard, besides the fact that his father worked here, his only real connection was Jim McDermott. And I have no idea why Jim adopted John, but he just did. And he would take John out and spend all, these all this time with John. We're not kin to the McDermott's. You know, they've been friends for years, but they didn't owe us anything. He just would take John out almost every week. And I remember John saying sometimes he didn't even want to go, but he couldn't stand to say no to Jim. And in all those times, I realized Jim was mentoring my son. He didn't have a son at home anymore. His son was grown. So he just started mentoring my son. I just want you guys to catch this vision of how beautiful it can be when all of us take responsibility, ownership, of the next generation, that we can all advocate Jesus for our children. Let's go to the next point. This is a, this is a sweet little point right here in Deuteronomy 11, by the way. In Egypt, the Nile was the queen. So all gardens were made in Egypt. By the way, if there weren't the Nile River in Egypt, Egypt would just be a desert. It's the Nile that, that irrigates the land of Egypt. So in Egypt, you just dig trenches off the Nile and you can do your own garden. And the Lord says to Israel, as they're getting ready to go into the land of Israel, it's not going to be that way when you get in Israel. I remind you, Egypt, at least in the, what they call lower Egypt, which is actually the northern part, lower Egypt has no mountains. It has no hills. So you have to think about this. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they had never seen a mountain in their life. They're going to Israel. Jerusalem's on a 3,000-foot mountain. And so the Lord says, you're going to a new kind of place. Listen to how he puts it. The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot. In other words, all you had to do was dig a trench off of the Nile and it would just fill up with water and you could have your vegetables. Instead, he says, the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from the heaven. It is a land that the Lord your God cares for, not the Nile. 
The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will send rain on the land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so you may gather your new grain, your new wine, your olive oil. I'll provide grass for the fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. To put it another way, if you will obey me, he says, I will take care of you. Get your priorities right. What he's saying is that in Egypt, you could, you could do your own thing. Just put your foot to the ground and pull out a little trench and plant your garden. When you get to Israel, he says, you're going to be depending on me for the rain. It's coming from the sky. And if you obey me, I'm going to give you so much water that you're going to have wine and olive oil. You're going to have grain, abundance and abundance. And if you don't obey me, he says at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to shut the sky up as though it were made out of iron. I'll shut it up. What he wants us to know is that Jesus has to be your first priority. And I'm going to say this to all of us, but parents, I will make sure you hear this. Raising Christ-like children must be your first priority. If it's not, you're putting the soul and the well-being of your children at risk. Sports cannot be your first priority. If it is, you're putting your child's soul at risk as well as their spiritual well-being. Academics cannot be your first priority. Success, career, these cannot be your first priorities. Jesus has to be your first priority. I think a year or so ago, I did a sermon on child rearing, and I called Julie up because I didn't feel like I had anything much to say. And I asked her, what, you know, what's your thing? And she said, get an A-plus in Jesus. Y'all remember when she said that, get an A-plus in Jesus? That's the bottom line. And it's true because Julie said it. <laughs> That's how you know it's true. But it is true. Let me tell you something. When I was growing up, my brothers and I, we played football. I, I'm not making this up when I say every day of our life unless we were sick, my whole childhood. We had a trench in our front yard from playing football there. Literally, grass wouldn't grow in our front yard because we played every day of our lives. But you know, my dad, um, I'm not knocking you, Daddy. My dad wouldn't let us play for the school teams. He wouldn't let us play. We, I think we would have been good enough. And you know why he told us he wouldn't let us play? Because he said, you'll have to miss Wednesday night church if you play football for high school. Now, let me say two things. First of all, um, he probably had other reasons now that I look back on life. But that was the reason he gave us. And I want to say another thing, Daddy. You could have said, go play football and have a devotional with the football team. That's what other people have done, and it works well. I don't know why you didn't do that with us. <laughs> That's one of your options. I think it's a good option, too, by the way. I encourage you to do that. But I will say this, it stuck with me. Church comes first in our family. Jesus comes first. There was no doubt in my family growing up who comes first. And I want to tell you something else. Y'all need to know this. When I saw my dad treat my mom right, and I saw my mom treat my dad right, and I saw that we put Jesus first, I had more security on the inside than you'll ever know. My whole world was a safe place. Men, when, you, when your children see you treat your mother with respect, or your wife, I should say, your mother too, but let's talk about wives, with respect and love, when your children see you men, elevate your wives, lift them up, praise them, make them great and noble in that home. 
You know what it does to your children? It makes them love Jesus. And when they see you put her down, they get resentful. It does. It builds up in them. And wives, I'm going to tell you this. If you have a running narrative, I'm quoting Renee Sproles on this one. I heard just say this a week or so ago. Here, here you are. When you have a running narrative in your head that he's never good enough for me, you know what you're doing to your children? You're cursing them. You're cursing them. That we want to be models that Jesus is first and Jesus' ways are first and his ways are first in my marriage. Hey, if you can't love the one you're with, I don't care who else you think you can love. If you can't treat your husband or your wife with love and respect, what difference does it make if you treat a stranger that way? And so I'm just making this statement, put Jesus first in your home and let our children see we put Jesus first. It's the only hope they have. All right, we've got something I want to do kind of fun at the end of the lesson, so I'm, I'm moving fast. Let's go down to verse 16. We'll read somewhat quickly now. Be careful, Moses says, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not produce rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. I'll just say it this way. Not only do we want to be positive in raising children who see Jesus in us, positive in depicting what it looks like to be at peace in the Lord, to have the joy of the Holy Spirit, but we also have to protect our children. Y'all know this, but Satan all the way back at the fall declared war on our children and it's not changed. You may not have wanted a war, it doesn't matter. Satan wanted one and he's declared war on your children. And if you don't know that, your children are at a greater risk. I can think of no way that our children are more at risk today, our children and adolescents, that in America's sexual ethic, which is sexualizing our children all across the West, all across the West U.S., Canada, Europe, if y'all aren't paying attention, it's getting bad out there. There's a paganism that wants to eat our children alive. Of course it would turn on our children because if it gets our children, it destroys our future. And I want to say I don't think there can be much better school system in Rutherford County and Murfreesboro City Schools, we got some of the best teachers, the best educators, the best coaches, the best administrators. But even in our school system, you have to pay attention because you don't know what our children are being led to believe by their peers, what's being whispered in their ears, what kind of messages they're getting. And what we need to realize is we have a very important job of protecting our children. We have to protect our children from influences. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But let me say two things before we sort of move on. I want to say this. I want to address some of the questions that I know some of our children are facing, or teens and, and uh, children are facing, in two different sessions. One, at East Campus during Sunday School Hour on September 18. We'll get more information out there on that. But if you want to come to that, we're going to talk about some of the challenges that our children and parents are facing. We'll do it again at the West Campus on Wednesday night. November the 2nd. The second thing I want to say is just this. I love the language of, this is the language, it takes a village to raise a child. That's actually pretty cool. And the truth is, North Boulevard is a pretty awesome village to raise a child. But outside of the Christian village, I'm trying to protect my children from the village. Because outside the Christian village, there are a lot of people who want to eat my child. 
And we have to take a stand. We have to be the parents. We have to be the adults in the house. I remember when our kids were little that Julie would tell them there's no such thing as privacy in this house. She had access to everything they had. Even I was shocked by that, thinking, well, me too, even. (laughs) No privacy. You know why? Because a child's not an adult. A child doesn't know how to live with freedom. Children need boundaries, guys. You need to be, you need to, men, you need to man up. They need good, healthy boundaries, and they need to know that you're serious about those boundaries. I wouldn't make 478 boundaries, make about six of them, and then stand firm on them. I'd do it in a loving way as well. And women, you need to make sure that you are protecting your children. There are a lot of predators out there. Don't, don't underestimate that. Set appropriate boundaries and be the adult. If you will be the adult in your child's life, one day they'll be your best friends. But if you choose to be another child among those you're raising, there's a really good chance they'll grow up hating you for life. You'll have to compensate for all the mistakes you made. Let's be adults, Christian adults. And I have to finish because i got something else I want to do. Here's how Moses ends his sermon. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. When? How often? Every Sunday you need to teach your children, he says. Or every supper time, that three minutes before you start eating. It's not what he says. Here's how many times you need to teach your children. You need to talk to them about the Lord when you sit at home and then when you stand up and start walking. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? You need to talk to your children about obeying God when you lie down and when you get up. You need to write the commands of God on the door frames of your houses, on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. What I would just say is this. You don't retire from Jesus. Investing in the lives of children for the sake of Jesus is a bare minimum. It's not the maximum. It's a minimum. Spending enormous amounts of time with our children so that we develop those relationships becomes life-changing for them. I, I, I need to wrap this up. I tell you, I'm not, I've never, I've, I think I've had one course in counseling my whole life. So I'm not a counselor, but I'm a minister. Ministers do counseling. Probably not that well, but we do it. And I mean almost every time, almost every time, we end up talking about mama and daddy. It always goes back to mama and daddy. A mother who was unfair or was um, all over the map. Or a father who was aloof, distant, or remote. It almost always comes out in counseling. It almost always goes back to that. And you just want to say, hey, guys, when your children come to me for counseling, I invite you to live a life now so that when they come, they will say, man, I had great parents, so it's not their fault. Like, fathers, do you have any idea how desperate the need your children's relationship with you is? How much they want that relationship? How desperate they are to have a relationship with you. Nothing a child wants more than to have a good relationship with daddy. Mama too, but there's something about daddies we don't realize that. They want to be with us. They want us to be proud of them. The the first words, the most common words every third, three and four-year-old says is why? Look at me. Watch me. Watch me. Hey, daddy, watch me. Watch me. 
in every case, what they're saying is, I want to matter to you. And it's not that hard to let them know they do matter. You just have to think about it. My friends, Jason Hauser, Bobby Harrington, and Bobby's son, Chad Harrington, wrote a book a while back on raising children. And they just gave this little formula that I think is a really cool formula. If you have rules in your house, but you don't have a relationship, you're likely to get rebellion. If you have a relationship, but you don't establish good boundaries and good rules, you likely end up with children who are reckless. The right formula is a good relationship and good boundaries. It'll produce a righteous child and righteousness in the Lord with joy will produce peace of mind. So I'm trying to make the argument. Each of us gets the privilege of handing the faith in Jesus down to the next generation. And North Boulevard is ripe with resources. We have a world-class children's ministry, a world-class youth ministry. We have college ministries, more than one of them. Sunshine School, which has a wait list. Discipleship Tutorial, which has a wait list. A list. We have a, what did I say, wait lift? Wait list. Small groups and classes that are oriented to various stages in life. Growing Kids God's Way has been in place at North Boulevard. It's an awesome program for grazing kids for more than 20 years. We have an adoption ministry that, whose, whose, fan is starting to, whose flame is starting to be fanned more and more. Where, where you're not only encouraged, but you're supported in fostering and adopting children. A marriage ministry. Do you all know we have a fantastic marriage ministry? We have a full-time counselor on staff. Every one of you has been subscribed already to Right Now Media, which is an access point for a lot of good Christian media entertainment stuff and a whole lot more. I just want you to know the resources are here. The big question for us is, how serious are we taking this? And I can't preach a sermon on this without calling up experts because we actually have several experts on this subject. So I want to ask you to welcome up here for a few minutes our lead children's minister, Amy Saint, and our lead youth minister, David Skidmore, because they know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> Sit over here. fell out of this in the first service. No. <laughs> Seriously. You know, we could just talk about that and maybe okay. I'll like it just as much as the sermon. Um, okay, so I, I do want to ask you all something. Y'all, so you guys lead big ministries. I think at first service, I guess you had about 4,000 in your ministry, something like that. And, uh, it feels that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But 300, at least 300 in each yeah. of your oh, ministries. Yeah, sure. And so you're dealing with this all day long. If you have the chance, and you do now, what one thing you want to say to the church, parents, grandparents, any of us about handing faith on to the next generation? Amy, just like it come off the top of your head or out of your gut or wherever you want to say it. What's the one thing you think, man, I want to say this to them? Um, I would say, and you said quite a bit of it in the sermon, like amen, amen to all your words that you've been saying. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things is the intentionality. Um, you cannot take it lightly. You have to go about your parenting with great intentionality. Um, I'm all about setting family spiritual goals every year and changing those goals up every year. Your children are developing at different rates and time. And um, so I, to me, it's such a big deal because when you set goals, hopefully you're trying to achieve those goals and you change those up every year. In fact, this next week, next Sunday in our family, um, Boulevard Kids Parent Meeting, we'll go over family spiritual goals and that's something we'll be talking a lot about. Um, I don't want to say just one thing. I, a few other things if I can. Um, the other is I, I totally agree with the mentorship, um, but I want to say also for parents, find like-minded 
families that are doing the same thing that you're doing. So you're not alone on the island as you're trying to raise your children to be spiritual, I mean, warriors for Jesus. So you don't align yourself with other families that aren't wanting that exact same thing. Um, so, I mean, North Boulevard, we are full of such wonderful, wonderful spiritual parents. So find those parents. And it's a plug for small group. Try to get in a small group where you guys are doing those same things together. So when you are struggling and you are um, having a hard time, you've got other families that are doing the same thing and that you can find that support. And I would say the same for your kids. So your kids are on an island also. And when they're in school and around other children who are not being raised like they are, you want them at church around other children who are being raised the same way. There's power in numbers with that. So um, I just think that's a huge deal. Get involved. Come. Be here. Be present. And um, when you mention the war, it's a, man, it is a war. But I wouldn't go through anything without being prepared for it. We don't even go out to dinner without researching the best restaurant and what to eat. I mean, we spend time on it. So why would we not do research on how to raise our kids at every single stage they're going through. And I don't mean like, okay, now they're in fifth grade, we need to know how to deal with a fifth grader. No, no, no. If my child's gonna be in fifth grade next year, I need to be prepared before they get in fifth grade. So I'm not like surprised as they are starting to like boys or girls or whatever that is, their interests change or their attitudes change that I've already, I'm prepared way, way back here. So you use I just the, think you that's use a big use, deal. I've heard you use the phrase, arm yourself. Arm yourself. For what's coming. So there are so many things out there. Obviously there's a slew of people that, I mean, if you want people, I'll send them to you, come find me and I'll give you different people to help mentor you or talk to you through things. But um, you talked about Right Mouth Media. There's so many great videos out there. There's movies, there's podcasts. Talk about Renee and Bonnie. I mean, your podcast that you guys do is so good. There's one about um, Raising Boys and Girls by Sissy Goff. There are so many. Focus on the family. Like arm yourself. Get prepared so you're not just aimlessly, blindly being lamb blasted because I mean, they're going to be. Satan's after them. So how are you preparing yourself and being armed as you go forward? Um, I do a thing, like I'll hand it out next week at the meeting where we have um, your child's spiritual development and being prepared for that um, So you and things to do as your child is developing so you're prepared. I just think it so matters. It's just, it's scary to me if not, if you're not prepared and armed. And, and you did that in your own family too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, David, take a... Tell us the thing that you think, man, I wish everybody could hear me say this. What would it be? Well, if you come to the filling station where our teens meet, you'll see a verse that we put up above the stage for several years that says 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. We call it the 2T22 passage, which says, what you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will then in turn be qualified to teach others. We want our teens to see that verse every week because we are training them to be reliable people. We're not doing a show for them. We're trying to train them to be reliable people. They have to listen to what is being said in the presence of many witnesses. So parents, it's your main job to be saying these things and then they hear them. They're the reliable people that we're going to entrust to teach others. We're just one generation away. If one generation abandons this, then then all of this that we've fought for and and are here for today is, is, is practically gone. Reggie Joyner in his book, The Slow Fade, talking about faith after high school, says that the adult, the faith of parents sets a ceiling above which adult children rarely rise. So parents, when they, what they see you doing as far as Bible reading or praying or serving or church attendance, all those things have their place. 
But he says, uh, adult children rarely rise above that ceiling. Uh, so the, the thing that I would, would ask, I guess, the most to point out is to know who or what is discipling your children. Because somebody is discipling them. And if it's not going to be you, uh, they've got a device in their pocket that I know is going to disciple them. So it may not be a who, it may be a what. They're being discipled by, by Spotify or by TikTok or by Instagram, by a social media platform, by other people. Somebody will raise up to do that. The number one thing, we didn't have a lot of teens at first service to do this, so I'll test you guys. The number one thing that we say, the phrase that at least you hear me say more than any other is what? Say it out loud, guys. Yeah, you are who you hang around. You show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Both of our ministries are, are trying to exist to create a number of environments where they can be surrounded by godly people. It's not uh, our job to disciple your kids. It's not the job of the children's ministry or the youth ministry. But we're trying to provide godly friends so that your child will have at least four friends, like the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, if they are spiritually paralyzed, they will have four friends that will bring them to Jesus. If your child does not have four friends, not just four friends or four teammates, if they don't have four friends that will bring them to Jesus when they're spiritually paralyzed, that should be the very first priority. And if teens, if you are not one of those people for somebody else, then, then, then we're, we're doing it wrong. So um, you ask me, say, what's the big thing? We're training them to be reliable people so that they will then in turn be qualified uh, to teach others. I want to ask you another question. I'm mindful of our time. So that clock, when it turns red, it's red because people start reaching for rotten tomatoes at that point. And that means they're like about done with us. But I have to ask you this. Um, what, like, what do you see as the biggest threat, the biggest thing we need to arm ourselves against facing uh, children and adolescents, teens today? What's the, what's, the, what are the big, what's the big threat? We can't do what are, but we can do what is. A big um, I'll probably get a bunch of hisses from over here, but I would have to say the cell phone. Um, so yeah, like yeah, my daughter's probably hissing right now, like great. But <laughs> um, the truth is, it is a device that we are so tempted by, and um, we as adults, I know, are too. But um, when I think about, we talked about this this past week. Um, my daughter is starting to learn to drive. She's 15, and I didn't just give her the keys and say, "Go drive the car, have a good time." Although I'm sure she would have loved it if we did, but. Um, you know, we're in the front seat with her. We're guiding her. We're talking to her. We've got guardrails. I mean, there's so many different things. And she has a whole year before she can ever even have a license and drive it by herself. And I feel that way about the phone. Um, we've got to make sure that we're careful because our kids have got this monster tool that is extremely um, influential in their lives. And it is to us, too. And therefore, we need to put guardrails on it like 100%. Okay, so they're techno technological guardrails that you can put on, parents yes. can put on. Yes. But you gave a little formula at first service on cell About phones. being the example? What did I say? No, it was, it was that too, but yeah. it was whatever you want it to be. Yeah. But that wasn't it. Um, you said hold off as long oh, as you can. Oh, hold off as long as you can. Before if you, can you, hold off, before you exactly take the right. smartphone dive, yes. hold on as long hold as you as can. Hold as long as you can. Because yeah. it has that much influence. It has that much influence. And the so, older they are, the more they're able to navigate it and do it with them. Like, And they're watching you. You said that about the example about being in the Word and the way you're living your life. But they're watching you on how you're handling your cell phone also. If you're on it all the time, they're going to be it on, on all the time. I mean, so you've got to put those guidelines in. It's so important. Um, and I'm in the middle of that now, too, so I, I understand the, the battle and the things yeah. that go along with that. Skid, biggest thing you think? Uh, clearly, I think the 
from 25 years of ministry, certainly currently, watching the, the assault on the sexuality of our young people, uh, it's the number one attack, at least currently. The three questions of adolescence are, who am I, where do I belong, and why do I matter? And everything a teen does, they're trying to answer one of those three questions. Every song they pull up on Spotify, every movie they go and watch, every sitcom they watch, every uh, thing they stream, every social media post, they're trying to answer that question. Every date they go on, every sport they try out for, trying to answer that question, who am I, where do I belong, and why do I matter? And the world is trying to identify, um, is trying to answer that question, but primarily in the issue of their sexuality. I said this in first service, and I'll say it again because I think it's the biggest thing right now that I see with students. Uh, Satan ultimately wants to destroy the relationship between Christ and God. He tried that, the cross, the resurrection was proof that didn't work. So he's going to turn next to the relationship between Christ and his church, his bride. The way he's going to do that is to attack the relationship between husband and wife. If he can begin to water that down, then the world no longer knows what the relationship between Christ and the church is really all about because that's our only real metaphor. So to do that, he will start when a young man or young woman is seven or eight years old and will begin to attack their understanding of their own sexuality or their relationship to, uh, to, to others. If he can do that, then he can begin to water down our understanding of marriage, which then erodes the understanding of relationship between Christ and the church. So I tell students, guys and girls, when you're seven, eight, nine years old and you're sitting in front of a screen or a computer or your phone, it is not that Satan is just trying to get you to do something bad by looking at something, but he's really trying to erode your understanding of what marriage is so that he can erode the understanding of between Christ and the church. It is a cosmic plan. But if you said, what is the number one thing that teens face? I agree with her. And most of them are getting, uh, they're, they're, they're learning about uh, their sexuality from these devices. But the attack on the sexuality of young people is the number one attack right now, I think. I wish we had more time, but we, we are out of time. So I'm going to say thank you. Let me say this. All of our children are being discipled. It's just, a question, it's just a question of who's discipling them. They're all being discipled. And we want to be the right kinds of disciple makers. So thanks, guys, for coming up. Let's give them a round of applause, and I'll finish the sermon. If you go down the halls, if you go down the halls of our children's ministry here, I think even next week Amy will be distributing these jars full of marbles. When a child is born... From that point until the child graduates, unless they're special in one way or the other, is about 936 weeks. And what she encourages you to do is take a marble out every week. And it's a visual that says, this is how much time you have left to raise that child. And as you see the marbles begin to disappear, what should happen is you should begin to realize that our children are given to us only on loan and that our time is invaluable that at some point or another, they move on. And God gives you lots of chances to start new chapters, but not in child rearing. Once they're older, once they're grown, once they're gone, you can't redo that. So let's do it right the first time and raise children who follow Jesus. Let's stand up and we'll see.